Good evening and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network. NachumSiegel.com. Welcome to another Thursday of Political Talk. Got a great show coming up for you. And first and foremost, we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman, Beckerman PR, Beckerman Public Affairs, BeckermanPR.com. Building market leadership and reputation through strategic communications. Tell your story with Beckerman. We're going to be a little bit all over the place this evening. So much in the way of political stories out there. There's domestic. There's New York. There's some Jewish-specific politics and news and policy, as well as we are less than a month away to the elections in Israel. And right now, the elections in Israel, or at least Israel and internal Israeli politics, are having quite a bit of effect on domestic U.S. politics. And as I've referred to before, and it's no secret, that the upcoming March 3rd joint session of Congress, which will have an address from Prime Minister Netanyahu, has become a political football going back and forth between the parties, within the parties. We're going to unpack and address that. But I thought we should, at this point, and we've discussed it over the last couple of weeks, pause and take a look one month out at the Israeli elections. Every day there's another poll coming out. You can actually see it's really amazing how many polls that there are. Uh, and uh, it's hard to know who is gonna, who who is who is up, who is down, who is looking. You know, there's it's swinging all over the place. I think some, when the elections were called, thought they'd be in a better position. Some are in a worse position. So to uh, address it all and unpack it all, we have a very seasoned pollster and political analyst, Mitchell Barak who is the founder and head of Kivun Global Research, one of Israel's savviest pollsters by the Washington Times. Mitchell, welcome back to Spin Class. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Great to talk politics and great to talk Israel. Fantastic. So we'll do them all at the same time. These days, Israel and politics are intertwined. Uh, Let's just talk for a second about the state of play in the Israeli political scene. Uh, Who is... uh, it's, It's kind of looking that... The prime minister will continue to be prime minister. It's looking that the right will be able to make a coalition. But well, every day, you well, never know. you make an assumption here, and you just never know until Election Day. You just never, never know. Okay, so give so, us uh, so give us the trends. Too, what do you see? Uh, I don't know. It's too early to tell, meaning it does look like he's he's got it. But, uh, you know, his Likud party is not that strong. Um, it's definitely not that strong. Uh, and um, you have other parties that are gaining on him, and the question is, is, is who is, is he going to have enough seats to form a party? Um, what happens is, is there's a lot of negative things going on. There was just a scathing report that came out against him, uh, and he's got this thing in Congress, which is looming over him, where you know he seems to have started off what what seems to be a kind of an election ploy, and is turning out now as uh, you know possibly driving a wedge between both the Obama administration as well as Jewish community and Jewish organizations. Well, conventional wisdom out there says that Bibi is only coming to Congress because it boosts his standing in Israel. Is that not the case? Is this Does this have the potential to boomerang on him? Uh, it could very well boomerang. Look, look, he's you know now he's he's trying to say that he's going there because there's a great existential danger against Israel. 
Um, why that speech is going to make a difference at this moment in time is unclear, uh, and why the administration is, seems to be pretty opposed to it, meaning I think it's unprecedented for an Israeli prime minister to come to Washington and to not meet the president and secretary of state. So he's going to have a problem trying to play that back to the folks at home, but the average Likud voter may look at that and say, well, you know, we have an existential threat from Iran, and the prime minister should do everything possible. It doesn't matter who he offends. Um, you know, it's, there's a chance that he could be strengthened by it, but it may, he may have more problems than, he's, uh, than he anticipated when he seemed to have embarked on this uh, adventure, this diplomatic adventure. So is it possible, from where you sit right now, that Bibi is not the next prime minister? Anything is possible here. Really, anything is possible, because the way it works here is that there are a number of parties. It's not a winner-take-all system. There are a number of parties, and together, of the 120 members of Knesset, they have to form a, a majority of 61. Of course, it's not really 61 of 120. It's usually about 61 out of 150, 148, uh, not, uh, not, uh, excuse me, 100 and, um, 109, 108, because uh, the, Arab the Arab parties, parties, right. the Arab parties, you know, it's a kind of unwritten uh, kind of agreement that they don't want us, we don't want them, um, you know, so they have yet to join a government, an Israeli government, which uh, makes it all the more difficult for a left of center government to take hold because they would be more likely to join that government, but they may just uh, block, they may just give them support from the outside, in which case they might be able to have enough of the 61. But anything is possible. I think we haven't heard the end from Yair Lapid. He may surprise us. I think Moshe Cajon could surprise us. And the Zionist uh, camp party also, you know, they're running pretty much neck and neck with Likud, which is kind of interesting because Likud is the incumbent party with the prime minister. Um, but it's just not clear, meaning it's, you know, look, there's a lot of people who are members of Knesset today or will be members of Knesset and especially leaders of political parties. In fact, all of those people I just named, the leader, uh, uh, Isaac Herzog from the Labor Zionist Camp Party, Yair Lapid from the Eshatid Party, and Moshe Kahlon from the Kulanu Party, they have one thing in common. They all personally cannot stand Netanyahu. And they would probably do anything to make sure that he's not prime minister again. So those parties might want to band together. And, and uh, Victor Lieberman's party, he is not thrilled with the Netanyahu either. And it says he would be happy to prevent him from becoming prime minister again. But he probably couldn't sit in with the left. And then you have the ultra-Orthodox, who aren't particularly happy sitting with Yair Lapid. But when it comes down to it, it's all about power and budgets and money and uh, who can influence Sounds like the New York State Assembly to me. <laughs> well, it's certainly uh, there certainly seems to be some palace intrigue uh, amongst this. But let, let's take some of these individuals that you that you mentioned uh, at, separately. Uh, Moshe Kahlon, probably unknown to most of our listenership out there, probably unknown to most Americans. Yet his party is polling seven, eight, nine seats. Who is he? What does he represent? Is he on the right? Is he on the he, left? Is he, he right in the no, middle? He, look, he's a, he's a Likud. Uh, he came up through the Likud, very, very popular within Likud. Sephardic, really, probably besides being the most popular Likud person for a long time, also of Sephardic background. 
which is uh, interesting because he took over where some other Likud Sephardic politicians left, whether it's Moshe Katsab or David Levy, uh, and had a, had a good career as Minister of Communications, was a guy that reformed the cell phone uh, market in Israel. Cell phone market in Israel is much more fair to the consumer than the, new, the one in the United States. You can leave your cell phone company at any time. You don't have to commit for two years. Uh, prices are low. It's competitive. It's really a good system. So he did that, and he's talking a lot about economic reform and economic issues, meaning there's a lot of social welfare issues here that people are not dealing with. So, you know, that's his party, and he has a lot of social justice kind of type people on his list. Um, that, that's what he's going to try and do. Um, and so, he may be successful at it. Look, he was he was really, like, uh, high up in the Likud when he left, and he left because he really didn't care for Netanyahu. Uh, so there's a lot of people like that in the Knesset at this point. And we're talking to Mitchell Barak, the founder and president of Kivun, a polling company in Israel, tracking very closely the state of play in the Israeli elections. Uh, what about Naftali Bennett? I, I know known quantity here amongst... Oh, well, I forgot to mention Naftali Bennett. That's very good. He also um, wants to... Uh, he also... Might, he also doesn't he like Bibi so much. Like make sure that Netanyahu uh, is not reelected. But uh, I don't think he'll have the seats. Look, he represents the the modern. Let's, uh, they're not really modern, the national religious group, uh, the Tilumi group in Israel. Um, you know, they they had a, a, a very strong showing in the last Knesset. They were hoping to gain on it. I'm not sure that they did. He's made some really critical errors in this campaign, both in in picking um, people that he wanted to run and then had to back out of. He picked a famous soccer player to be on his list, which no one could understand. And he's also made some quite arrogant uh, statements about becoming the next, becoming a future prime minister of Israel, and it's seen somewhat as a uh, religious, to a certain extent, messianic type party. So that they, at one point, people were looking at uh, Bayt Yehudi as being, uh, you know, getting 17 seats or so. They have dropped uh, from that. At the same time, polling initially had a terrible showing for Yeshatid. Uh, as, which is Yair Lapid, and now they seem to be, have stabilized a little bit. So what this, there seems to be an incredible seesaw amongst uh, all these parties. May, are they potentially looking at the same voters? Are they looking at the same pie and grabbing from each other? Uh, some of them are. Within the right, the parties that are going uh, for the same votes are uh, the Likud and the Baida UD, certain extent Yisrael Beitano of Victor Lieberman. And within um, the Yeshatid and Kulano, the Moshe Kahlon voters are pretty much going for the same uh, same people. Um, so it's uh, and among the left, um, the Zionist camp is also uh, banging heads with uh, Yeshatid. So there is a, there's a lot of talk within the movement within the blocks, but not movement from left to right. Meaning someone who identifies like center left is considering two or three different parties. Someone who calls himself center-right is considering two to three parties. So so there's a lot of fluidity in, in, in this race right now. Now let's talk about the breakup with Nshas. I mean, how much that is affecting uh, the... the uh, that, and what I'm talking about is the split between Eli Yishai, who has started his own party, and Aryeh Derry. Um, you know, obviously the passing of Ravavad Yosef last year has been, or two years ago, has been a big, uh, has been a big, uh, I guess, a drag 
on Shas's prospects. Uh, how will that impact? Is that benefiting Moshe Kahlon? Who was who who winning, if anybody, well, from that? Well, I, I think a lot of, yeah, some of those Shas voters are going to go out of the religious parties. Kahlon could get that because he's a Sephardi candidate, but it could also go to the Likud. Some of them were traditional Likud voters. Uh, where they thought that Eli Shai was really a uh, going to be a drain on the Shas party, and take votes away from the Shas party. He does to a certain extent, but he also takes votes away from the uh, Baida UD, the National Religious Party, because he's gone out and um, gotten some, you know, settler type people, some right wing uh, religious, not necessarily Haredi ultra orthodox. So that list is appealing to the people who would normally vote for Baida UD, the Muftal, but find that uh, Naftali Bennett is a little too light in the religious department and the people on the list some of whom are secular, they've, they've gone out to reach out to secular people, uh, is not what they're looking for in a party. So let's just talk about uh, for a second as an American, you, an American who's been involved in politics in America, you're coming, you, you're in Israel, you've been in Israel quite some time, you've got a l- large pedigree working for Israeli politicians, Shimon Peres, Ariel Sharon, uh, etc. But there is this trend, I guess, amongst them of American political consultants slash pollsters now working the Israeli races, and it seems that almost everybody who is in who is in contention has some kind of American political strategist working for them, helping them with targeting, helping them. Is there is that a is that just something the media is talking about, or is that real? Is there a real trend towards that Americanization? No, it's been, look, uh, the first election I worked on was in 1988 which was quite some time ago, and uh, Richard Worthlin, who was then the White House uh, pollster for Ronald Reagan, was in Israel working for Yitzhak Shemir and the Likud party. Uh, and no one you know, accused him of being sent by Ronald Reagan to help Yitzhak Shemir. So it's been going on for many, many years, and even that, that's probably the first time that it happened on the Likud side. Labor was using Democratic consultants uh, before that, um, it's been going on for a long time, meaning, you know, the American consultants are running elections all the time. They understand uh, certain things that Israelis, uh, you know, pollsters and election strategists don't because they just don't have the experience. And, you know, the U.S. Pulse, uh consultants have the most up-to-date methods, many of them. And I think it's also helpful because, you know, you have a lot of infighting within a campaign. So when you bring out a person from another country and you pay him a lot of money, People tend to listen to that person more, and there's less fighting. That's part of it as well. <laughs> that that's definitely an inter- interesting perspective. But I guess that begs the question, or my follow-up question is: What about the homegrown Israeli political industry? Are there just the caliber or the, of the of the polling? I mean, what, what is the methodology? Uh, well, What's missing in Israel? There, there is, and the way Israeli uh, elections are run, they're usually not run. See the differences in the states. If you're going to run for Congress or Senate or you want to see if you be president, the first person you're probably going to hire is a pollster. And he's probably going to serve as your lead strategist, or at least, you know, do a poll to see what's your chance of winning, chance of running, what messages, how does the public see you. That's the first thing you do. And then you have to, you know, have a campaign manager and have the issues, and you have someone who's dedicated to running campaigns and, and buying media and messages. In Israel, the first person you hire is an advertising executive, because he runs your campaign. And traditionally, you know, each of the big advertising agencies has run political campaigns because it's all, it's, it's not as much substance as it is packaging. 
there are not issues. If you look at any of the ads, and you know, you can see the New York Times did an article today about advertisements in the uh, Israeli campaigns. There's very little substance going on. I, in fact, any of the ads that the Likud has put out on, um, you know, on YouTube uh, have been kind of comedy things that are either their comedy making fun of uh, Netanyahu himself or um, criticizing the opponent. There's very little issues spoken about, whether it's the Iranian threat, whether it's Hamas. There's almost no um, discussion of that, and there's no real issues. And there's no real facts that people are being presented with. So, you know, and that also leads into what it, what the debate looks like. You know, there hasn't been a debate in Israel for many years. And I think that's because the Israeli politician doesn't really want to face the voter with the real issues. This is an advertising campaign. And they look for slogans and get those slogans between now and the end of the election. So you've anticipated a whole bunch of questions that I've uh, that I had prepared for you, which uh, well, specifically well, you, with know, you know, Michael, the <laughs> Gemara does say that the prophecy in our day comes to young children and fools. So uh, I would you, be you in take one of your those pick. Categories. <laughs> but but <laughs> why is it? Why is it, the Israeli voter just doesn't want to think about it? The politicians don't want to think about it. I mean, there are some big existential issues. I mean, Netanyahu is coming to America to talk about the existential threat. Okay, Netanyahu right. has talked about Jews leaving Europe and coming to Israel. Okay. Yeah, a, very, a very bad policy, if I may add. Very horrible policy, which undermines the local Jewish community in whatever place he's trying to promote it, uh, reinforces any kind of dual loyalty uh, charge, and makes Jews look weak, like they're running. Why should Jews stay put and fight there in Ashdod and Ashkelon? And, and Ashdod and Ashkelon. And why, uh, but why should they run from Paris? Meaning, if if you if you have to uh, uh, if you're a victim of terror on the West Bank, you should stay and fight and let's build more settlements. But if you're a victim of terror on the left bank, it's time to run. It's time to run away. It's a very very bad policy and it's very dangerous. Now, how does that play? That must play well to Israeli voters. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. Yeah, well, it does play well to Israeli voters because we're big on Zionism and feeling good about ourselves, and that uh, this is the place for every Jewish person to live. Which is, a, you know, it's a it's a good, it's an important part of Zionism. But to actually say it is undermining uh, relations with these countries. I mean, France didn't like it when Netanyahu came and said it in Denmark, where there was a, uh, a terror attack, meaning they hadn't even buried the dead victims of the terror attacks, and Netanyahu is already calling on Jews, all Jews from Europe, to uh, to move to Israel. Um, you know, in, in addition, in addition, you have uh, a whole bunch of other issues taking place that, uh, you know, imagine, if you think about it, in the past 20 years, there have been many American Israelis, uh, meaning Israelis who made Aliyah from America, who moved to Israel, and were victims of terror attacks, who have been killed, including the synagogue in Harnof, uh, including one of the boys who was kidnapped over the summer, Nachshon Waxman, 20 years ago. What would it be like if the Secretary of State, John Kerry, came to Israel and said, you know, Israel is not really doing a good job at protecting Americans living here. There's terror here, there's Hamas, there's Hezbollah, there's the Iranian threat, and the U.S. government is offering now five-year tax abatement plus a $150,000 housing grant if you would move back to America. Would that be the right thing for him to say? I can't imagine that flying very well. You know, and I think I think we've just become arrogant, and 
and and I think we don't think some of these policies through, and that's a very very dangerous policy, and a very very dangerous message that the prime minister is uh, giving all over the place. Okay, Mitchell Barak, founder and president of Kivun, a polling firm in Israel, close track. Uh, tracking very closely the upcoming Israeli elections coming up on March 17th. And uh, we hope to have further analysis on a weekly basis over the next couple weeks leading up to those elections. Mitchell, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thank you so much, and take care. You too. This is Spin Class. Uh, we are sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. I want to welcome to the conversation Nathan Gutman, the Washington Bureau Chief from the Forward, and uh, who has been reporting very heavily on Bibi Netanyahu's upcoming speech to the joint session of Congress on March 3rd, which is also dovetailing with the upcoming APAC policy conference, probably the lar- one of the largest gatherings in Washington of the annual political calendar, as well as possibly the largest gathering in the Jewish community, although not everybody who attends the APAC policy conference is Jewish. Nathan, welcome back to SPIN class. Thanks for having me. So let's just talk for a second. You wrote a very interesting article about the rift within the Congressional Black Caucus over the Netanyahu speech. Some of very prominent Israel supporters, longtime Israel supporters, are not going to be attending Netanyahu's speech. And, you know, we've talked about this here as far as the speech itself and the way it was presented, and we don't have to go into that background because I think most of the audience knows that already. It's been discussed ad nauseum. But the the I, the rift within American politics and this being a Democrat-Republican thing and looked at as a Republican, now at the same time, I would say the majority, the vast majority of Democrats are going to be attending. But within the Congressional Black Caucus, which is which is an inter- there's an interesting microcosm of this conflict. So why don't you explain it to us? Right, definitely, because uh, as you said, there's a pretty small group of members of Congress in, that have announced already that they'll boycott uh, the speech. We're talking about in 22 um, House members and three senators. That was the latest count. But among these uh, House members, there are at least 13 that are members of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, and these African-American uh, lawmakers have been leading the charge against uh, Netanyahu's speech. Now, it's interesting to see the reasoning behind that. Um, because when you look at their statements, you speak to them. Um, some of them uh, um, state the fact that they 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 see it as a collective insult. Uh, um, the fact that the Prime Minister of Israel and the House Speaker are treating uh, uh, the first African American President of the United States in such a way, and that's much uh, of, of the motivation we see behind that. There are also, uh, among those who are boycotting, there are members of the Congressional Black Caucus that are traditionally aligned with more progressive views. And uh, the progressive community uh, has been critical of Israel's policy and of Netanyahu's policies for a while already. So that maybe makes uh, more sense uh, on that end. And uh, and for the Jewish community, this is uh, and the pro-Israel community, this is a little bit of of a problem because... um, uh, Throughout the years, um, they've been very uh, the Jewish community and the, and the Congressional Black Caucus um, have forged pretty useful ties for both uh, sides. Um, members of the Jewish uh, community and Jewish lawmakers um, were in the front lines of, of, of civil rights uh, activism, legislation on that uh, issue, and uh, it seems that the issue of Israel was never a dividing force uh, in, uh, between these two communities. 
and now it seems to be popping up, so it is raising concern. So Charlie Rangel uh, gave a quote, I think it was at the JCRC breakfast, JCRC of New York breakfast, if you have a problem with our president's or POTUS's foreign policy, meet me at APAC, but not on the House floor. Perhaps that was a tweet that I'm saying. Yeah, that was a tweet. Okay, that was a tweet. But Charlie Rangel is known and... You know, not not a man of the right, clearly a, a very a very prominent Democrat and a very partisan Democrat at that, but known as a stalwart friend of Israel and even uh, throughout the decades. Uh, do you see this as being a defining moment potentially for some of these long time for the John Lewis's of the world? John Lewis being a moral voice within, you know, that somehow we're going to. When the next time around, when somebody points and says Israel is South Africa, John Lewis might nod in approval, or Charlie Rangel might well, nod in approval. Well, that, that was exactly what uh, the concern was among uh, many Jewish activists that uh, um, I, I spoke to, and that was pretty much the reason we set out to do this article to see if there is any long-lasting impact here. If this this does mark any kind of, of shift in the positions of the Congressional Black uh, Caucus, especially with the uh, very pro-Israel uh, lawmakers. You mentioned John Lewis and Charlie Rangel. And the answer I've been hearing from everywhere is no. This is uh, a contained issue. It has to do mainly with the fact that uh, members of the Congressional Black Caucus feel that Netanyahu and Boehner have slighted the, the, the president, and they feel the need to, to stand in solidarity with the president uh, on this issue, but that it won't have a, a long-lasting effect on their views uh, regarding Israel or relations with uh, the Jewish community. So at least for now, I think uh, most people would agree that this isn't uh, isn't a watershed moment. Now talk for a second. This is, might not be... Uh, you mentioned in your article Steve Cohen, which is who's an interesting... Uh, because he's Jewish and generally identified with the left, but he also represents a majority African-American district in Tennessee. And he said, uh, he quipped, I guess, that maybe I will protest by watching it from the women's section or from the balcony, uh, meaning the visitor's gallery. Uh, Hopefully, I'm paraphrasing the the quotes. But, you know, there's been a struggle for Jewish lawmakers as well around this. Well, definitely. It is splitting in Jewish law members of the, where there is no official Jewish caucus in, in, uh, in Congress, but uh, Jewish lawmakers have been split on this issue as well, even though a majority of uh, uh, the Jewish members will attend Netanyahu's uh, speech. Uh, Steve Cohen does stand out as one of the leaders of, of the protest against uh, uh, the speech. He was uh, uh, one of the original signers of a letter that was delivered today uh, to Speaker Boehner, Boehner calling uh, for postponing the Netanyahu speech. And as you mentioned, he does represent a, a district with a, with a strong African-American constituency. We've seen a congressman, John Yarmouth, from Kentucky, also with a, a significant African-American constituency. He also joined those who were saying that they will not attend the speech. And interestingly, in the Senate, of the 10 Jewish members of the Senate, two of them announced they would not come into Netanyahu's speech. Bernie Sanders from uh, Vermont and uh, Brian Schatz from Hawaii. They're the two Jewish senators uh, that are on the list of the boycotters so far. Which is interesting from two points of view, and I I actually wanted to get to Bernie Sanders before we run out of time. 
Bernie Sanders has announced he's running for president if nobody else challenges Hillary Clinton, and clearly he's going to run at her from the left. But at the same time, I recall Bernie Sanders in a town hall meeting in Vermont where he was heckled and booed and yelled at for being for I for being pro-Israel. So it's interesting, you know, Bernie Sanders uh, originally from Brooklyn uh, and uh, certainly grow. You know, certainly identifiably Jewish with a you know very uh, a Jewish look persona political persona uh, he would be he has I guess been taken to task sometimes by the left for being too pro-israel yeah, right definitely uh, uh, and it's interesting because um, even though he, he does come from the more progressive uh, and obviously of the political map he, he sees himself as a social Democrat and uh, uh, an independent um, when uh, pro-Israel activists look at Bernie Sanders, they see pretty much a safe vote on most issues relating to Israel, whether it's uh, foreign aid or um, support for Israel and, uh, on other issues. So he definitely is on that side of the map. And, of course, um, we've seen in, in past years that on the left uh, side of the political map, there are those who are trying to use Israel as a wedge issue, um, as, a, as a way to attack candidates and Sanders received some of those attacks as well, even though on most issues he's aligned definitely with the more progressive end. What are the chances, from your point of view, covering Washington, that this somehow somebody figures out a way to make this whole speech go away? I think by now we've probably passed the point of no return on this, where we're talking about two weeks before the speech. It's uh, in really unlikely that something will come up now. There were some off-ramps on the way that Netanyahu could take, that the president could take. Netanyahu could could have announced that uh, in, he miscalculated the, the, the political storm and he doesn't want to get into American politics, and therefore he'll only come and speak at APAC, maybe brief members of Congress uh, in private. Uh, the president could have uh, maybe found a way of, of meeting with him in a on the sidelines of the APAC conference, there were ways to, to resolve this. But by now, it seems that all sides are, are entrenched. Uh, Netanyahu has made this into a key factor in his election campaign in Israel. He keeps saying time and again that he is intent to come and to speak to Congress. And uh, in his, uh, people in his circles are, are, are leaking to the press that um, he understands the, the consequences of this, but the Iranian issue is too important and he's willing to pay the price. So I think by now it's pretty clear that um, there is no real way out of this collision course and Netanyahu will come, speak to Congress, um, whatever price it will be to pay in terms of his personal relations with uh, Obama, um, uh, he'll probably have to um, take that into consideration. But I don't really see a way out right now. Very interesting, and I would imagine, uh, I know, don't have time for another question, but APAC is essentially caught in the middle on this at the on the eve of their biggest event of the year. Of course, and, and APAC is really um, uncomfortable with uh, this whole situation because APAC's source of power is the fact that Israel is a bipartisan issue on Capitol Hill. This is how it became so successful, and turning is Israel into a, a political issue, into a partisan issue, cannot in the long run serve the serve the cause of APAC or the pro-Israel community. Okay, Nathan Gutman from the Washington Bureau Chief from the Forward, uh, reporting extensively on the, as it was put on our last show, the Bibi-Bama drama. I think that that is a, 
one way to look at it, and which has really consumed a lot of officialdom in Washington. Thanks for giving us this inside commentary here on Spin Class. Hope to have you again soon. Sure. Thank you very much. I want to switch gears here on Spin Class, and again, we're sponsored by BeckermanPR.com. We're going to ha- talk a little bit more domestic, a little more Jewish, a little more New York, uh, a little uh, more parochial, and discussing once again in the news the ongoing saga, the ongoing tale of the East Ramapo School District up in Rockland County, as uh, the audience well know, knows well that this is a majority uh, Orthodox Jewish district. Uh, district with a majority of yeshiva children or private school children versus public school children, as well as a majority of the board being Orthodox Jews. At the same time, there was legislation introduced in Albany or to be introduced in Albany. There's a Senate bill. There's an assembly bill that would impose a monitor on this district, essentially with veto power over the elected school board. Here to talk about is Capital New York's Jessica Bakeman, who covers education throughout the state and has been covering this. Uh, Jessica, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks so much for having me. So just uh, as as I kind of gave that introduction, a lot of our audience is familiar with uh, the issue, but what happened this week? Was any of this surprising uh, that these legislators in Rockland where there is a very potent political force that is the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, they represent the Orthodox Jewish community, but have yet introduced a co- sure-to-be controversial bill on this on this topic. What happened? What's new? And what can we expect? Well, I wouldn't say that it's surprising, because the people involved have been saying for a while that, that they were going to do this. Um, so the key lawmakers here are Senator David Carlucci and Assembly members Ellen Jaffe and Ken Sabrowski. All three of those are Democrats who uh, re- represent, whose you know, their uh, district is in some part of, in Rockland County, and they have some part of East Ramapo. So they uh, they have been working together on this issue. Um, I'm sure your listeners probably know that Ellen Jaffe, in particular, has uh, carried legislation for many years dealing with East Ramapo, um, and uh, she does support a change in the funding formula that would allow more funding, but uh, along with that, she has consistently supported having some sort of state oversight of the finances of the school district. And obviously, you know, um, the governor and the state education officials asked attorney Hank Greenberg in uh, a over the summer, I believe, to take a look at the the school district's finances, and he did a report, which he then presented to the Board of Regents in November, uh, and his recommendation was to um, have the legislature pass a policy that would um, establish state oversight of East Ramapo, and he also, um, the, uh, he also recommended an increase in funding. So obviously, uh, the school district has struggled with uh, with its finances, and um, there's a lot of unmet need there for the public school students. So, um, basically, those three lawmakers have been saying for a while that they planned on uh, following Hank Greenberg's recommendations and introducing a bill, and they they finally did that yesterday. So the bill was introduced, um, and. 
basically what it would do is it would give the state education commissioner, which of course was formerly John King, but now that position is vacant and the Board of Regents are conducting a national search for that position. There is, of course, an acting commissioner, but the state education commissioner would be responsible for appointing a state monitor who for five years would be able to override the actions of the board and the superintendents, and this is uh, this is from the legislation. If the monitor determines it's necessary for the educational welfare of the students, the monitor will also have the power to propose a course of action or resolution to the board if the monitor determines this action is needed. So the, the monitor would be able to propose something, um, and the monitor would be uh, would would attend all school board meetings, including those held in executive session and would um, be a part of developing what's called a strategic academic and fiscal improvement plan and then would oversee the implementation of that plan. So it would be five years and then according to this legislation, if at the end of that five years the state feels that there's still need for oversight, uh, lawmakers could extend it to, um, or actually I think it's the state education officials could extend it for another five years. And the legislation says it would take effect immediately. Right. Approval. So a lot of times you're trying to solve an issue, you offer a carrot and a stick. This seems to be all stick with no carrot. Yes, they are in favor of changing the funding formula and increasing funding to the district, but there is no actual proposal that changes a funding formula that doesn't count, that counts a district that as if they don't have any private school children, when in fact they have 22 or 24,000 private school children and they don't get any funding for them. So um, you're right to say that this bill doesn't include a funding increase or the change in the funding formula, uh, although the lawmakers that crafted the bill have said that they see it going hand in hand with a funding increase. And, um, and you would be also right to say that 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 the fact that they're saying that is no guarantee. Obviously, um, budget negotiations are, are probably happening now, but will definitely happen in earnest um, next month. And uh, it's hard to say what is ever going to be in the final budget, even in the days or hours before it's finalized. Um, but they, they did say that their intention is that this bill will go hand-in-hand hand with the additional funding. And... Um, I'm not sure if the governor will uh, support that, but he did appoint Hank Greenberg to do this report, and Hank Greenberg's report said there should be a funding increase, so I think it will at least be considered. Now, from an education policy perspective, and you're an education reporter, uh, I can only think of one. In New Jersey, you have several districts that are under state control. And in New York, we had one, I have to live in Long Island, so I remember the Roosevelt School District was, right. uh, was under state control. And that was very contentious. Uh, in itself. But there was there were some very significant, if not you know, criminal uh, issues going on in Roosevelt. Uh, there have been criminal issues going on in other school districts throughout the state. The fiscal monitor, and I think the, the reaction from the Orthodox community or the community in Rockland is that, well, they didn't find out that anybody had done, in fact, anything wrong, per se, as, you know, from a, there was no criminal malfeasance, there was no malice, there was nothing, you know, uh, this is essentially uh, an issue of, well, we don't like your policies. Is this a precedent that might be set that if, well, we don't like, you're an elected school board, we don't like your policies, so therefore we're going to impose a veto power over that. 
that how does what is the kind of message does that say to uh, to people who live up there who voted for the in these you know for this school board? You know, I mean that, and and basically what you just described is is the debate over this, and it's not something that I personally would weigh in on, but um, but the school board president uh, released uh, a statement yesterday saying that you know he was disappointed and frustrated that this legislation seemed to perpetuate the impression that there was some wrongdoing. But at the end of the day, the school board president and the superintendent have said that they are open to state oversight if it comes with more funding. So it seems like a compromise is imminent. Right. I I guess I was talking a little bit more big picture in a sense of, you know, here's Albany now potentially looking at having a monitor in a school district, uh, which, you know, coming soon to a district near you. Uh, in a sense, you know, it's it's a uh, that's an interesting precedent to be set. Is anybody out there kind of saying, "Whoa, hold on, you know, this might not be a solution that you know that that we would want because it gets rid of local control and local control is yeah, a very important has, thing in New York." I think there has generally been a push uh, for local control and against um, state and federal mandates in school districts. I mean, you see that definitely with the opt-out movement that's growing among parents who um, instruct their children not to take state exams based on the Common Core standards. Um, and so I think that that movement is, is definitely there. And obviously you mentioned Roosevelt, um, which uh, it was a, a very different situation than with East Ramapo. And obviously also the the state is talking about a receivership program that would allow uh, the state to appoint a, a, an individual or a nonprofit organization to take over a school that is failing or, um, you know, struggling at academically, chronically underperforming. Um, and there is some pushback with that as well because people are saying, well, what is that? Uh, what does that mean for the democratically elected school board? Um, so I think you'll see that, but I think there also is, there's, there's some difference between the general idea of a receivership program that would affect chronically underperforming school districts and what's happening in East Ramapo, which is obviously unique circumstances. Okay, Jessica Bateman from Capital New York, education reporter, filling us in on the latest, uh, pretty dramatic, I think, developments if you're following this closely, although it might be a little insider baseball from that perspective, but certainly something that's being followed very closely in the Jewish community and in the Jewish community of Rockland, where the potential is, uh, and I don't know, we haven't really talked about the chances of this actually passing, but uh, but potentially uh, impacting the school board in East Ravapo, subject of controversy. Uh, Jessica, thank you for joining us, filling us in, and hopefully we'll have you again in the very near future as this, uh, I'm sure this is going to continue to be an issue uh, in right. the coming uh, months. Okay, thanks. Thank you. And this is Spin Class. We're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com. I want to welcome Jake Adler, the acting political director for New York. Uh, hopefully I got that right, that title. Uh, Jake Adler is the OU's, OU TeachNYS point person uh, when it comes to political advocacy in New York State. Jake, welcome to Spin Class. Thanks for having me on, Michael. So, uh, Jake, something obviously percolating, uh, certainly percolating today even as we speak, uh, as, as as did this legislation regarding Islamapo, is New York City's 
UPK, Universal Pre-K Program. And you, you ran, you sponsored, or your group ran a, some, I thought, excellent advocacy ads aimed at Mayor de Blasio, make Universal Pre-K universal. And it seems that the mayor and the administration, or at least the Department of Education, has countered with an offer of trying to accommodate the needs of the Orthodox community. It was reported in Hamodia. It was reported in the New York Times as well and had support from a number of influential figures within the Jewish community for certain accommodations that can be made for uh, yeshivas to have UPK. There seems to be some controversy as to whether it's good or not, whether uh, a half slice of pie is as good as the whole slice. So why don't you fill the audience in on what is going on right now, what are you looking for for your schools that you advocate for, and what's uh, what's at stake here for the Jewish community? Sure. Uh, thanks again for having me on. If we could just backtrack about a year. Um, we can. The mayor ran on a platform that promised to basically lift up the entire city as a whole. And part of that, the cornerstone of that platform was that he was going to offer a full universal pre-kindergarten program for every single four-year-old in New York City. Every single four-year-old is estimated to be around 73,000 four-year-olds. Come, he, he gets elected, he has his first uh, State of the City address, and he says, again, I will offer a full universal pre-K for every kid in every neighborhood of every borough, no matter who you are, where you're from, etc. Fine, very good. Fast forward to May, an RFP comes out, and it's a six-hour and 20-minute day. Problem with the six-hour and 20-minute day for our community, obviously, is that you can't have a Limune Kodesh curriculum for a four-year-old and maintain a six-hour and 20-minute secular day um, the way it is currently. Uh, the mayor spoke to the, the various... Orthodox groups around the city, and they all unanimously said the same thing. Six hours and 20 minutes will not work for us. The mayor pledged to go back and tweak the regulations and see what he could do. Very nice. Month, months pass. Months and months and months pass. No changes. So we get to the first year. The mayor announces proudly 53,000 children are enrolled in UPK. We crunch the numbers. We look. Let's see how many Orthodox kids are in UPK. It's under 1,000. So under 1,000 UPK slots for a population of about 10,000 is a pretty dismal um, failure. So essentially, we've been promised that every single one of our four-year-olds will be served, and now we have 89% of them are not being served. So that's now bringing us up to this school year. They release another RFP for the second round, the second year of UPK for All. That's what the program's called, UPK for All. Again, now we see... No changes to the six-hour and 20-minute rule, but this time they take a they take another step, and there's no half-day UPK option. Now, Michael, as you know, half-day UPK was was something that the yeshivas relied on. Many yeshivas relied on. It's a two-hour and uh, two-and-a-half-hour program. It's a few thousand dollars for the yeshivas, um, and it's certainly with a two-hour program, two-hour-plus program, you can maintain Lumine Kodesh, Lumine Chol, and you're not interfering with one or the other. Everything's good. So in response to the RFP and the lack of a half-day RFP, the OU and the other groups um, raised a clamor, I would say, and said, you know, Mr. Mayor, what's clamor. going on? And uh, the mayor, Deputy Mayor Beery, um, sent a letter to uh, Rabbi Zuibel of Aguda and said, don't worry, I promise you, this is in early December, don't worry, I promise you, in the very near future, there will be a half-day RFP. He did not address six hours and 20 minutes. 
But he said, I promise you there will be a Hatsayarv. Fast forward January, February, now we're in February. So we're still waiting on RFP, and we still haven't had any relief from the 6-hour and 20-minute problem. So that's the historical um, background. So, so I, I, it seems that you have every justification for the advocacy, for the ads, and so now that we're looking at today, what's the controversy itself? Because it seems, at least if you read the New York Times and – you know, I, I don't always believe everything I read the New York Times, uh, unlike, you know, others out there. But you read the New York Times, it seems problem solved, right? They offered, made a great offer. They said, go ahead, you can have time for, for davening, you can have time for all these things, you can have, we'll fill in the federal holidays, you can have Sunday school and the like. Great offer. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, there's a, a few problems with that. Number one, Sundays were offered to the community in May of last year. There's a memo that was circulated to all the communal groups uh, in May of last year that said, okay, we understand your concerns. Uh, we're going to allow you to count Sundays. Even with Sundays, we still had 89% of the community that could not opt in. It just doesn't work. So telling me now, rolling out in Hamodia, Baruch Hashem, now we can have Sundays. Sundays will fix it. Frankly, that's, um, you know... That's not going to help. We already know Sundays don't work, and they they expanded it to federal holidays also. So now you're telling me that my four-year-old should go to school six days a week and on federal holidays. That just doesn't make sense, Michael. So where do we go from here? Let's uh, let's let's talk about that. What is the the who, why is there not a negotiation? Why are they not working with you? Why is that? Why a letter then to certain people in the community saying? Okay, this is the offer. Instead of trying to work this out in a in a way that everybody's happy, you know, I I don't want to speak for the administration. I uh, I would encourage you to speak to them for that. Um, I certainly don't want to put words in their mouth. I don't know why they haven't been uh, straightforward with the with our community. I think our community is a is a pretty reliable and pretty loyal citizens and taxpayers of this of the city, um, and certainly of the state and the country. Um, I don't know why they can't be straightforward with us. These changes are really kind of lipstick on a pig, if you will. Um, they're, they're, they're basically telling us we're going to change two little things, one of which, one major factor of which was already allowed a few months ago before this process started. And we're, we're hoping that now, now we're going to be good. Now you guys, are can, you guys are satisfied. Look over here. They're basically saying, look over here. I have a shiny object. How about you and, and distracting us, and then they're hoping that everyone will be distracted and not pay attention to the fact that they're leaving out 89% of our kids. So if you're asking where do we go from here, um, you know, that's an interesting question. I would, I would encourage everyone who's listening to uh, drop a friendly call or an email to the mayor's office. Uh, you can call 311 if that's easiest. Um, I certainly think the community needs to be involved. Um, there already have been hundreds of calls, hundreds of emails. I would encourage that to continue, and I would encourage any uh, yeshiva, day school, Mossad that wants UPK but still can't have UPK to, to call me, to get involved. Um, all options are still on the table. Okay. How would somebody contact you, Jake? You can give me uh, shoot me an email, jadler at ou.org. Okay. Jacob Adler from the Orthodox Union, OU Advocacy. 
continuing the uh, struggle, fight, I don't want to be too melodramatic about it, regard to making UPK truly universal, the city of New York, to accommodate yeshivas that and orthodox schools. I imagine the yeshivas are not the only schools that have that, that can't fit in. They're not the only community, right? There must be others out there. Right. Any any faith group or any any non-public school group that insists on having a dual curriculum is going to run into a problem. Right. Um, some more than others. We obviously have the most rigid standards. And, you know, there's something else that we have to remember here. We, unlike some other faith-based school systems, have an entirety, entirely, we're uh, 100% of our population is our, our religion, right? So the entire raison d'etre for our schools is to teach our little kids the, the, the lifestyle and the Torah that we had passed down to us. So it, it doesn't work. It's not workable for us to say, well, we're, we're just going to take a few minutes of the day before the UPK time starts or after the UPK time starts. That doesn't provide the training that our kids need to, to, to provide the foundation um, for, for life going forward. It's just not, a, it's not an option for us. So. Okay. Jake Adler from OU Advocacy, thanks for joining us, and hopefully you'll be updating the audience on this issue as it progresses. Thanks, Michael. I want to welcome to discussion, welcome back, uh, Ross Barkin, uh, one of our frequent commentators on New York City politics, on the mayor, all things. And I apologize for time being short, but there's just so many issues going on. Ross Barkin, welcome back to Spin Class. Let's jump right in there. Uh, did the de Blasio administration fumble this whole UPK thing by essentially, or at least according to Jacob Adler from the OU, excluding a very large segment, the largest segment, uh, if you will, of uh, of private school children out there? Well, um, I don't know if uh, fumbling is the right word. I know there's definitely a lot of um, people who are aggrieved. I guess some elements uh, of the you know Orthodox community did support the plan. I know Kudus Israel, um, Chaim Deutsch uh, had praised uh, Councilman David Greenfield and not Orthodox Union did not. So I think they, they tried to reach uh, some type of compromise. Obviously, a lot of people aren't happy I just don't know for them how feasible it is to, to add all those half-day slots to kind of uh, shorten the uh, number of hours of secular um, education that are needed. So I think I think the Dewalji administration is a very, in a very tough spot. We're kind of trying to do what they could uh, to make at least some people happy. But the city, as Jacob pointed out, used to have half-day slots, and they, they seem to have said, okay, well, let's make everything full day, and we'll make restrictions, we'll make it very tight. Uh, you know, it just – it also seems to – another subject I wanted to get into is to remind me of their inability to work, even though they said they were going to do it, to kind of come to an agreement with the – the Orthodox community on the on the Matitsa Pepe issue, on the circumcision issue. Right. They, there seems to be a fits and starts on this one as well. Yes, we're going to have an agreement, but we don't have an agreement. We hear there, you know, and they, you know, and they kind of throw something out there and then let, uh, let the, as you mentioned, Chaim Deutsch on one side, David Greenfield on the other side, kind of let them uh, fight it out. Right. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly a Matitsa Pepe. I mean, they've dragged their feet on that. I mean, but that's so that's kind of the the Blasio administration way. They don't always act with the most expediency. I think they proceed often with a lot of caution. And I think, you know, in the heat of a campaign, they they make a lot of promises. And perhaps in time, they'll deliver a solution to Bay Pay. But they they move very, very slowly on on certain issues. And they kind of have their agenda, um, you know, outlined. And they they definitely have priorities. And to, to be frank, I don't think... 
resolving the Mississippi pay issue is one of their top priorities. And um, in terms of UPK and North Box community, I don't know, um, you know, if they can really make everyone happy in the situation. I don't know if they necessarily want to go all out to do that. Okay, very interesting. Let's transition away, I guess, from the, the parochial orthodox and just talk about uh, the mayor and I, I think a pretty rocky, not so great week, right? He didn't get the Democratic National Convention in Brooklyn. He definitely staked a lot of, I don't know about necessarily political capital, you'll tell me, but certainly a lot of personal push on that, uh, a lot to have that convention in Brooklyn. Uh, then at the same time, kind of as a tangent to that, he lost his chief of staff his former chief of staff, who had gone over to the convention at the same time and said she was coming back but didn't come back, and in addition to having lost some other staff members, senior staff members, early in administration, that's an unusual situation to have lose uh, some some senior staff members like that. So I guess neither one was a particularly good week for, for the mayoral administration. No, the, the D, losing the DNC for sure was disappointing for him. I think um, they must have known going in that, Brooklyn, the Barclays Center, was always a bit of a long shot. The fact that they made it to the final round was something they took solace in. But the truth be told, the logistics of it were never good. They would have had to shut down a lot of major thoroughfares and businesses to actually have the convention there. And Philadelphia just made a lot more sense based on where the arena is located to to have a convention. I think if Bill de Blasio uh, had it in Madison Square Garden, it could have happened but he's uh, not close to James Dolan, who owns the Garden, and James Dolan is someone who's fought with the CWA, the uh, Communication Workers Union, and de Blasio is very close to them. And in terms of Santucci, I and I had reported on this, it, it seemed to be that she was on her way out for several months and that she wasn't someone who gelled with the administration. This was a way to kind of ease her out. And I would say it is a bit surprising that, this many senior staffers, you know, have departed for, for perhaps unrelated reasons. Um, Peter Ragone, his senior advisor, went back to the West Coast where his family is. I think there's a sense that he may have been kind of, uh, you know, tired of the rigors of, uh, you know, being in the, the heat of New York City and, you know, he can go make more money in the private sector and go do that. There are questions about how good a job he was doing. And um, no, with Santucci, too, I think it wasn't clear she was fitting with the administration and the DNC was a way to edge her out the door. Let's talk for a second about the the new speaker and de Blasio uh, and and the mayor. OK, Carl Hastie is now in there. I should mention, of course, we didn't mention it beforehand that this morning, uh, Assemblyman Sheldon Silver was, in fact, formally indicted by a grand jury, a federal grand jury on a couple counts, uh, not every count, I think, that was in the complaint, which is interesting uh, in and of itself, but I can't, I don't pretend to understand these things. I'm certainly not going to put you on the spot, Ross, to try and understand that. But uh, clearly, uh, de Blasio has an ambitious agenda to deal with in Albany. He's got a new speaker to deal with. He has a very hostile Senate that is going to be very hostile to him, and he doesn't get along too well with the governor. What can he expect from now uh, until June in the Albany session? I think he's going to have to lean very heavily on Carl Hasty. I mean, from an ideological standpoint, Carl Hasty and Sheldon Silver are very similar and shared a lot of the same priorities. I think losing Shelley was a big blow to de Blasio because Shelley was such a master negotiator and so good at extracting wins for his conference. And, you know, for, for liberals, even though he's up against Republican Senate 
our Republican governor, George Pataki, and now, you know, Andrew Cuomo, someone who's not always friendly to Democrats. So I think um, de Blasio, and he still has yet to unveil his Albany agenda, and I think a lot of reporters are looking for him to do that. So the question will be, what does he want exactly, and then how much of it does he want? And I think at this point, he's being very careful to perhaps not be too aggressive in his asks, like, you know, getting certain uh, certain real estate, you know, tax uh, breaks that are popular with the real estate board, with the Republicans getting those scrapped from the books. And I think he's trying to figure out what he can do with a Republican Senate, with Governor Cuomo, and with with uh, with Carl Hasty, And he's going to get some, some victories here, um, I think, come June, but it's going to be very very tough road for him, for sure. Okay, Ross Barkin from The Observer. I have to cut it short here. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thanks for giving us the latest on all this. There's so many little nuggets here we're going to have to unpack at a later time, and uh, just uh, that's the way it is. Uh, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Okay, and just closing out today, just uh one political word to the wise. Uh, yesterday, last night at a Scott Walker, that's Governor Scott Walker of Wisconsin, had a dinner for potential donors and seems to have been upstaged by former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, who said that President Obama doesn't love America. And uh, he may be right, he may be wrong, but one thing is for sure when you're running for office, don't let the the guest or whoever it is become the news item in your uh, story, your narrative. You want to control your own narrative whenever you're going out there on the campaign trail. Very important point. And uh, I don't think this will damage Scott Walker going forward. Uh, but, uh, you know, if for anybody out there, word to the wise, make sure your guest doesn't upstage you. That's our little political nugget for today. Thanks for joining us here. Another Thursday evening of political talk in the books. And we'll see you next week.